Hi and welcome to Insecurity, a podcast about computer security built from the ground up. Visit our website at in-security.org for past episodes, the show notes, and to leave comments. You can contact us by sending an email to feedback at in-security.org or follow us on Twitter at Insecurity Show. My name is Matt. And my name's Max. So, what's news this week, buddy? I'm excited. I'm so excited for this episode. And you just can't hide it? And I just can't hide it. Why? What has happened? What is this episode? What are we even talking about this week? What's the continuation of last week? Remember this whole continuity thing? (laughs) No, I wasn't paying any attention last week. That's not true. I had it on good advisement that you understood everything that we discussed last week about how, you know, computers work. Oh, right, right. Um, standing up and shaking hands and turning in a circle. Booyah! Recall! Um, we have no banter. I'm very excited about this show. Is it? This show, we, it, it's the next advanced portion of the show. But you know what else I'm excited about? What's that? The people downloading the podcast. Do we have people downloading the podcast on purpose? We have like three or four people in China who are doing it, which I can't believe that's on purpose. Uh, we have a bunch of people across the U.S. We have Google downloading it. We have Amazon Web Services downloading it for who knows why. Uh, logs are a wonderful thing. I have to admit, I feel vaguely sus- suspect at these numbers that you're pulling out of wherever. And to the person who keeps attacking the WordPress site, if any of your efforts were fruitful, just please let us know. Although I haven't seen you download an episode, I hope that you soon do. What attacks are you seeing? Uh, you know, the, if you look through the logs, you see people trying to do funny things with WordPress sites, all from a single IP address. It might be mine. I'm just really bad at using WordPress. <laughs> no, it, it's definitely somebody trying to abuse the WordPress site. But I think that it's just somebody who found out that it's a WordPress site and are throwing everything they can at it. Do you have any feedback this week? Any feedback? How about follow-up? Well, do you have feedback this week? Have you heard anything from all of your followers? No. And I would love to hear feedback from our followers, even those guys in China. Ni hao and gong hei fa choi. One of the things I wanted to talk about really briefly before we go, uh, before we go on to the show is I was reading through some uh, some interesting news articles this week. There was this whole article about the Sochi Olympics. And as soon as you arrive there, if you blatantly abuse any computer security practices, then your devices will automatically be hacked. Did you see this? No. Uh, there's this article. Oh, not article. There was a report on the news. They unboxed some devices. They had a computer security expert there. And as soon as they arrived, they had brand new out-of-the-box devices and connected to a network there and were instantly hacked. Okay, so there's a problem with some manufacturers who are sending stuff abroad who... um, There's something that's termed in the inner circles of information security as certified pre-pwned, which means as soon as you get a device... It has already been compromised from the manufacturer to your doorstep. Is that what you're referring to? No. Um, The sensationalism of this story was that they took um, iPhones and 
MacBooks fresh out of the box that they had brought with them. And then they set them up in a hotel room or something in Sochi. And by virtue of connecting to the network, they declared that they were instantly hacked. Okay. NBC's Richard Engel. My computers and cell phones were hacked almost immediately in Sochi. NBC News' Richard Engel said that upon arriving in Russia to cover the upcoming news event, he was hacked almost immediately, and privacy is not something visitors should expect to have. It doesn't take long here for someone to try and tap into your laptop, cell phone, or tablet, he said Tuesday night. Engel decided to test Russia's privacy system with the help of American computer security expert Kyle Wilhoit, who set him up with two brand new computers and a phone identity with fake names and addresses. When Engel connected them to the internet in Sochi, he said he quickly received a suspicious email and was shocked when his computer was hijacked immediately after opening the email. In minutes, hackers were snooping around, he said. The same thing happened with my cell phone. It was very fast and very professional. Within 24 hours, both of Engel's computers and his cell phone had been invaded, giving hackers the ability to tap and record phone calls. Brian Williams reported Tuesday night that visitors of Russia can expect to be hacked, and it's not just the reporters. The State Department warns that travelers should have no expectation of privacy. Even in their hotel rooms, as we found out, you're especially exposed as soon as you try to communicate with anything. So the moral of this story is don't open suspicious emails, don't connect to open Wi-Fi, and if you're going to use any devices, make sure that you do it on a trusted network. Right. And have firewalls up and have your system patched and preferably hardened before you go to a strange place with it. So that was this sort of sensational news story. And then if you read various follow-up articles, you will see effectively people debunking it, saying, look, obviously, if you follow absolutely no practices of security, you will, in essence, open yourself up to becoming compromised. Other practices you could go ahead and do would be when you enter a hotel room, if the bellboy asks you if he can take your laptop just for a minute, don't give it to him. <laughs> if they ask you if you would like to install the hotel software, don't do that. If you receive an email that says, you are number one winner, you get the gold. Click here, gold.exe <laughs> underscore keylogger.exe underscore trojan.exe. Don't run those. Yeah, that's those that's are not the ways advice. to win the Olympic gold. Without actually letting you read that story, I don't know that we can comment on it much. No, it doesn't matter. I don't. I don't have to read it. It just—it's so ridiculous. Uh, it's classic FUD, which stands for fear, uncertainty, and doubt. Typically leveraged at other countries or even within your countries where the children are involved. The other thing that has been going around. Oh wait, before we go to that one. Just to touch back on this, the, the, the FUD. I don't understand why anyone would have any semblance of expectations of privacy when they're traveling in Russia, or why especially any Americans would have any expectations of security or privacy while traveling in Russia with the NSA, since the NSA is probably tracking them and most likely much better at it. That was it. That was all I had to add. I mean, if you go to a large gathering where hundreds of thousands of people are, you should expect that there's going to be a few bad apples and that you need to protect your stuff accordingly. 
If you go into foreign countries, especially those that are known for their intelligence gathering, counterintelligence type organizations, specifically, you know, China, Russia, US, any of the Five Eye countries, then you can expect that there's probably people going to be listening into the conversations to see if you're divulging state secret type stuff, whatever. Right. So on to another interesting story that happened. Someone had discovered that you can be very tricky by using some of the stuff we were talking about before, where you have an iframe that's being called through JavaScript to overlay an area on top of something that you would input. And they'd use a PNG, which is a network graphics file, and they'd actually call that through the JavaScript. And the PNG in the header of that would have the metadata that describes it's the data that describes the image and you can just actually add a whole bunch of extra stuff into there where you can actually add in some of the malicious payload into that. And once you split the maliciousness between the JavaScript file and the PNG file that it calls or any other file that it calls to pull information out of, then suddenly antivirus companies and whatnot can't look into it and can't deduce what's happening. So it's a good way of the people bringing up that bar in that cat and mouse game to try to take it to the next level. We have a tendency to use a lot of PNG graphics on our site because they're a lot smaller and load quicker and also support transparency. Yeah, right. But the defense against this is obviously don't allow iframes to work on your site. Right. So what have we got lined up for this week? Or did you have any follow-up? Any housekeeping? We're going to really rely heavily on the previous episode to talk about this next episode. I guess the only thing I could say is that maybe I was unclear that buffers would only exist either on the heap or the stack, where in reality they actually exist in both places. So we'll touch on that a little bit further. Anything from you? No, I think we're pretty much on par right now. All right. Well, this episode, we get into the deep, dark, fun side of exploitations. Last time we were talking about the memory and how it gets written across and and mapped across. You have the stack at the upper end of the memory that's growing down as you keep getting more stacks put onto it. You have the heap growing up and, and the actual code part and the data segment parts, the BSS and the heap, all that is growing from the bottom up. And there's these references to the different components of where you're at in the program Uh, as it exists in memory, and these references are called pointers, right? We talked about the stack frame pointer uh, and the instruction pointer, and these keep track of where in the program's execution you are, as well as where you came from, so that when the function ends, you can get back to them. Pointers are used all over the place. They're, They're also used throughout programs. If you want to reference the same variable all over the program without having to copy that same value everywhere, in some of the lower level programming languages, you can reference these pointers. You can create your own pointer and reference that value wherever you go without having to use up all of this extra memory. And it's also logically the same so that if someone changes the value within the memory space that the pointer is pointing to, then wherever you reference it elsewhere, it's still got that changed value, right? It allows a variable to be transparent throughout the whole process, even if it's not within the data segment or the heap or the BSS. I guess when we're talking about memory, another thing to keep in mind is that 
the order in which things are written to memory in the common architectures is a structure called little endian. And what that means is that it's written in an order kind of reversed to as you think about it. So whereas if you're writing characters to memory, which are each character is a byte long, right? And a byte can be represented by two hexadecimal characters. So that makes up eight bits. If you write the letters A, B, C, D down in a string, as that gets recorded, it gets translated first into a hexadecimal. So A is like hexadecimal 4-1, B is hexadecimal 4-2, C is 4-3, and D is 4-4. As it gets written into a buffer, it actually goes backwards. So it starts at the end of it and it just writes it as it goes back up the stack towards the, the top part of it. So it would be recorded as DCBA, which is actually hex 44, hex 43, hex 42, hex 41. And then at the end of a string, you always have the null character that's represented. Right? And that tells the computer to stop reading the input. So then you'd get that null character right after that. So far, so good? So when it's writing, it would write the null character first then? No, no, no. Sorry. No, sorry. When it's when it's inputting, the null character goes in first, so that it's null A, B, C, D. And then when it writes it into memory, it goes opposite, or it just doesn't have the null character in there? No, that, that's a, an interesting point. Um, the null character is recorded so that it also knows when to stop reading back the whole buffer from memory. But even though it's little endian... It's going from the least significant bit first, which is the end of the text that gets written in, all the way to the beginning of the text, and then the null character gets recorded there. So it, it just knows that, okay, that's the end. I'm going to put the null character there. Uh, but that's a very good question. Thanks for asking about that. If you remember last time when we were discussing about the stack, the first thing that gets written to the stack is the variables that are called within that function. Then you have the instruction pointer recorded of where you were in the previous function or code area. Then you have the stack frame pointer, which gets stored to tell you where you were in the previous stack. And then you have whatever else you have defined within that actual function. So, for instance, you have a buffer located there, right? And whatever else is, is pertinent to that actual function executing gets stored within that area of memory. So if you have a buffer there, and the buffer could be in the heap or it could be in the stack or it could be in both places, but first we're going to talk about a stack-based buffer overflow. And a, a buffer, right, is a defined set of space that you have put aside in memory. And what we're going to do in this is we're going to overflow that space and I'm going to tell you about how that's going to have interesting effects on the way that the computer actually runs. So if you have your buffer there, keep in mind that the buffer doesn't stop being read until it hits that null character. So if you have a buffer set aside for 200 characters, right? You want someone's first name, last name, middle name all to go into this one thing. And you want to be generous with the space that's associated with it. Then, then you allocate those 200 bytes and you allow people to type whatever they want in. Someone enters in a longer name like a 240-character name. So you have somebody with a lot of hyphenated names or whatever, something very much outside of what you had anticipated being written in, right? It, it might actually crash your program because it's overwriting the place where it has to jump back to. 
And this is only really common in some of the lower level programming languages. But keep in mind that everything gets translated down to machine language at the end. So unless your program specifically looks for that bound being not greater than so many characters being entered in, and you just write it into the stack, into the memory, and you start executing against it, then you're going to have problems. Now, if someone's crafty, they can write in something called shellcode or some other malicious function that they want. Shellcode is just computer security talk for code that executes a shell. So be it a slash bin slash bash on like a Linux-based system or a, you know, C colon backslash Windows backslash system backslash cmd.exe, right? Something like that that actually gives them interactive command prompt on your machine. So they can have a shell code exist within the space of the buffer and then overwrite that instruction pointer of where it has to go to next to say, go to that thing that I just wrote. Go to that shell code. And the shell code is not going to be written in just text, right? It's going to be written in the hexadecimal system so that it actually reads it in machine language and it's going to be written backwards so that it gets interpreted correctly. And then you're going to overwrite that memory space that says where I have to hop to next to go and execute that actual code. So it's going to execute that code and then whatever. If the program crashes, a shell's still been started in the background that's interactive. And someone can then do malicious stuff under the context in which that program started. Any of that clear? Yeah, it sounds very clear so far. Okay, it's kind of a complicated topic. But then when somebody has that shell, they can, they can do whatever. There's another type of overflow of buffers. If the buffer gets created on the heap or the BSS segment when you define it to begin with, that will overwrite the previous function call. So some implementations of this are like changing the permission. If, you, if the application keeps track of what user you're executing the context under right before the buffer is allocated, the next thing that you overwrite w- with that buffer is that permission setting. So you can say, now I'm executing as an admin perhaps. Or if it's big enough buffer, then you can put in your shellcode into there. Or you can put your shellcode somewhere else and make reference to it through a pointer to say, okay, whenever this is going to be called, it's actually the shellcode that needs to be called. So whenever somebody references this heap location, they're going to execute this shell. Let me ask you this. This may or may not be on topic. When they're writing in this shellcode, is this basically by filling in one of the existing forms and then just overloading the field that's in there? Or are we not actually going to discuss or have we discussed and I just didn't get it how they would go about overloading this and getting this overflow? So when you say form, you make me think of web forms, which is not at all where this would exist, right? This is this is an actual program. Because you had the idea that there was an input of some kind where you would be putting in your name. Right. So, so this would be a, an executable that you run on your desktop. So when you're registering software, perhaps, or running um, any business application that you might have, where it would require like a customer name or whatever that gets run. And it's a thick client app, meaning the executable is actually sitting on your system. 
right? It's a compiled code program that's running on your system. So any of the input fields might be susceptible to a buffer overflow. And so then is it within the input fields that someone would be writing this um, reverse hexadecimal code? Yes. Yes. So where they okay. would be asked for it, they could put in the reverse hexadecimal code to execute the shell script, right? And then make reference to it. Or as discussed, um, it's possible to have multiple instances of programs running. So you could load up a, a separate program and reference it from this program because it's all sharing the same memory space across the whole computer, right? So you can have you know multiple pieces of shell code sitting there waiting to be executed and guess that right memory location from within this program. And, and there's actually something that helps people guess that right location there's an opcode that's there for CPUs to access, and it's hex code 90, and it stands for NOP. And NOP means no operation. So it's an opcode op for no operation. And so you can put a whole slew of these things together, right, and have this NOP sled, it's called, where it'll try to access this piece of memory uh, to execute something. And it just goes, no execute, no execute, no execute, no execute, no execute. And it goes all the way along until it gets to the shell code. And then it'll say, okay, I'm going to execute this because it's the next thing to execute. So you can pad your program with these NOP sleds to make sure that you overwrite the instruction pointer where you need to actually get to if the buffer is too big for you know your shell code, if it doesn't fit neatly within there. I feel like that might have just been really in-depth. Um, are we going to have something about that or can we have something about that in the show notes? Absolutely. Absolutely. But just remember that when it comes down to machine language, there's all these different codes to mean to do something, right? So if a, a NOP op code means just don't do anything this time. And it's useful for waiting around for things. Yeah. Keep in mind that because this is a really dense episode, a really heavy episode, always check out the show notes uh, you can follow along at in-security.org slash EP015. We'll have some more information about this. Hopefully something about the NOP sled, as it sounds fun. <laughs> definitely, definitely will be there. So the NOP sled just adds a buffer to your buffer shell code. So it's a handy thing to do if you're not super precise or you need to fill up extra space in that buffer to actually get to that shell code so that you can overwrite the instruction pointer and do the bad stuff that you want to do. Moving on. Yeah, so buffer overflows in the stack or the heap have been around for a very long time. There's actually a really bunch of famous ones that have been out there. Uh, SQL Slammer was this. Heck, I even think that the Morris worm was a buffer overflow, that first worm that was out there that actually did abuse the finger, Damon. I had it on good authority that that's the case. Um, yeah, so, I mean, this, this problem's been around for a long time, and I'd mentioned in previous podcast that one thing that was put into place to help mitigate this risk was ASLR, or address space layout randomization. And then there's also that stuff that's built into CPUs nowadays, like the no execute bit or data execution prevention. So... By combining these technologies together, it makes it more difficult for a buffer overflow to actually work. There's still a bunch of ways around it. Oh, the address space layout randomization, just so we understand it in the context of memory allocation, starts the program in a different location 
every time. So that when you're trying to find a buffer overflow, you actually want to look at how that machine's executing the program and what memory address is being called so that you can figure out where the instruction pointer is that you need to reference so that your shell code can execute, right? If you don't know the memory address where your shell code is, then it's very difficult to actually reference it through the pointer. Is that clear? Yes. Okay, good. So ASLR and NX bit protection helps this. But cat and mouse game isn't complete without the new piece of arsenal coming out, right? So people have found out that there's other ways to get your shellcode to execute. And that is using techniques like return to libc or return oriented programming, which uses jump back sequences, the return to the previous codes, and you can cherry pick which return codes to do to actually execute code. It's all kind of complicated. And just know that this is kind of that second generation of how to make buffer overflows work and bypass these security controls by chaining these return codes together in uh, return-oriented programming. It's called ROP, and you have these ROP gadgets which you leverage to make it a repeatable kind of exploit against these things. So next steps, right? Now you got to get that mouse or that cat, whichever one it is, to up the level. So Microsoft actually had something called the Blue Hat Prize, which was in 2012, I think, um, where they had gone out to the community and they said, okay, we recognize that there's a problem that wasn't able to be addressed through ASLR and NX bit protection. So what's the next defense without entirely rewriting Windows to be something like the mainframe where all of these extra protections are in place? What can we do next to add a control to help mitigate against these? And so the there was 20 entrants into this and there was three like top three winners. And there was a couple that were very interesting techniques to actually mitigate the risk and to basically make ROP way more difficult to do. And then research now is at the point where they're saying, okay, instead of actually using the return codes for doing this, we can actually cherry pick jump codes throughout all of the programs that are existing on a computer currently. And instead of it being the return part, it's actually the jump forward part. And it's something called JOP or jump oriented programming. So that's, that's the end of where we're at right now. And it's in its infancy, but basically you can be very clever and have a little bit here, a little bit there, and you cherry pick it throughout to actually have your shellcode execute. Like, that was really complicated, right? Yes. This is still the attackers, though, right. that are at the most recent point. That's right. Is um, going to the offense, not the defense. So, so far right now, the offense is ahead. Yes. But, I mean, every time you go up a level in skill and complexity, there's a whole bunch of people who get left behind and aren't able to do it, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. I'm. I'm just saying that out of this anecdote it's or this story, it's the currently the offense who has the most recent volley. Yes, and it's always going to be that way with computer security. Your computer is never fully secure, right? You just mitigate all of the reasonable threats out of it. 
And so we're left with user education being that final frontier where you, you know, don't let people execute code. Don't don't put all of the control of a program in the hands of the person who's running that program. Have that backend component validated if you've got a client server type program model. Right. Uh, okay, so there's a, a couple other things that fit into this memory space and, and these low-level programming languages. One of them is called the format string vulnerability, and it really applies to mostly C code and assembler and whatnot. But the format string is, I think it actually might only apply to actually C program and maybe C++ by its legacy of inheriting a lot of C's programming language into it. So where these low-level languages have the ability to directly manipulate memory, and maybe I wasn't clear about that before, but like the heap, when you have something that's on the heap, that's because you've done like a memory allocation malloc type call directly within the program. And when it's in a function that gets called up as just like a variable type thing, then it ends up on the stack. Um, So I probably wasn't very clear about that. But anyways, these low-level memory uh, manipulation programming languages, they, they've built in certain shortcuts within them. So one of them is like if you want to output to the screen something that somebody had input previously, there's like a secure way of doing it and there's like an insecure way of doing it. And there's different calls that you can do, but the shortcut is always the insecure way. Isn't that always the fact? So where you might have someone define that they're going to output using like a printf function, the proper way of doing it is saying, okay, I'm going to print out a string or I'm going to print out an integer. So you define that printf, open parentheses, open quote, percent s for string or percent i for an integer, close quote, comma, the variable name, close parentheses. And so that says... I'm going to output this as a string or as an integer or as a whatever it is. And so that's called typecasting. And it just uh, defines exactly what's going to be output. Another way of doing it, the insecure way, is just saying printf, open parentheses, variable name, close parentheses. And that's just blindly trusting what a user had input into it, right? You're not casting that variable. You're not saying... Okay, this one has to be a string and it's only going to be ever represented as a string. So if it again is a buffer of characters, somebody can type in the hexadecimal equivalent of a percent %x to show the memory address of where they currently are. Or they could do percent %s to show the actual contents of that memory address if they can define that memory address within the amount of buffer that's allocated to them. Or they can even do something like percent %n for a memory address, which is the ability for them to write to that memory address. So this format string vulnerability allows people potentially to enumerate all of the memory on a system, right? If it's, uh, if say it's just a regular user program, that it would be in the non-protected memory space. But it could still contain things like passwords and encryption keys and stuff like that for for other applications or anything else running on there. If you have a web browser's memory space there and the last thing somebody did was enter in a password for a website, that might still be existing in the memory there and that could be dumped out. Or if something like the slash etc slash password file is read into memory 
you might even be able to overwrite that and append to that file a new user with root level privileges. And then that person logs out of the computer, logs back in under this new user with root level privileges and has access to the whole computer. So that's very similar to what we were talking about before with sanitizing your inputs and doing it properly as opposed to doing it easily. Absolutely. All of this is all about sanitizing your inputs, which is probably easier said than done. But there are some languages that have this built in that make it more resilient. There's another one that is somewhat complicated and it's pointer can have the value of a memory address where it has to point to. But there's also the ability for that pointer before it's got a value defined as to what memory space it's pointing to, you know, it could be null. Or there might be a reason why a pointer gets cleared to put some other value in it. If you've got like dynamic code that's that's being generated that you need to allocate a new memory space by that same variable name, right? There might be a point in time when you clear that value before you put a new value into it. And this is where race conditions come back into it, right? So you can have a race condition where you have multiple instances of that same program running. And one part of one instance of the program clears that memory space. The next instance of the program references that memory space suddenly your program crashes with a null pointer exception. And a null pointer is actually one of these unique cases where it calls like a special opcode when something like this happens because it's a big problem. And so in some instances, this can actually gain you privileged access to the kernel, specifically in in Linux-based machines of earlier pedigree This could gain you access to anything that the kernel had access to, which is bad. That is bad. So you want to make sure that if you have multiple instances, if if your program's one that can have multiple instances, that you use something like a semaphore where that value can only be referenced in one program at a time and there's error checking around that, or that you actually check, make sure that that value does not have uh, a null value before you allow someone to reference it. And last thing. What's a semaphore? Oh, a semaphore. That's the thing that we had referenced a long time ago as to you have a value that's set and it's like an on or off bit. And it says if something's in use that nobody else can use it. It's like a lock, right? Saying, oh, this one's locked. Nobody else can use this at this moment. Please wait until it's unlocked. Try again. Okay. Uh, and then the last one is an off by one exception. So if you are doing bounds checking, the 200 character example, right? And you can't have greater than 200 characters. You remember last episode where I told you that computers start counting at zero? Well, when you write can't be greater than 200 and you're counting characters, you forgot about that first bit. If you said can't be greater than or equal to 200 characters then it would properly bounds check. But if you just say it can't be greater than 200 characters, makes sense to us, right, as people. But there's actually one character that you missed. One character being eight bits, being two hexadecimal characters. So there's the ability within that to do a buffer overflow type thing where you're now overwriting that next component from that stack frame pointer. So that next time it goes to that stack frame pointer, it's actually pushed into 
your code within that 200 character buffer that is your shellcode because that happens after that stack frame pointer. And when you overwrite those two least significant bits of that reference, that's actually further down that stack towards towards the heap. Hmm. And that's about all that I can handle covering. <laughs> but that, that takes us through the, the basic memory exploits. And your defense is use a programming language that handles memory manipulation much more maturely, do proper bounds checking, and yeah, validate input. That was a lot of information. I'm still parsing a lot of it. Um, I'm going to have great, great references to very useful information within the show notes. So by all means, take a look at those. There's some complicated white papers for the more advanced stuff like jump-oriented programming, but everything's pretty understandable. And if anything's unclear, if this was just way, way too advanced, let us know. Send us an email to feedback at in-security.org. And if this is the kind of content that you always want to be exposed to, then of course, let us know in the feedback as well. You know, you can go back and see the show notes at in-security.org slash EP015, as Matt had stated earlier. And that's it. That's all we can talk about. And I don't even have any content set aside for next week, so who knows what you're going to get. It's the end of the show. Thanks for tuning in, everybody. Go back and start listening again from the beginning, and we'll pretend like it's a different show. (laughs) I think we'll get into some less deep stuff next time just to help people decompress and digest this episode. A A little bit of lighter episodes again? Yes, sir. That sounds excellent. I can't wait to hear it. Until then, I hope you have yourself a great week. You too, buddy. Take care. 